0: A scripture reading is from the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 2. You can find this on page 995. Mark chapter 2, and we'll begin our reading at verse 1. This is the word of our God. And when he, that is Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. This is the word of our God. Congregation loved by our Lord and by our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's been noted that the Gospel of Mark, as the shortest of the Gospel Accounts is the action movie of the Gospels. The action movie of the Gospels, meaning that the movement is constant. The pace is quick. Mark's favorite word is immediately, immediately, immediately. It is Mark's fast-paced and beautiful portrayal of the life and the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's also been said that the shadow of the cross falls upon every verse of Mark's gospel. We might entitle the gospel of Mark the king and his cross or the king's cross or the suffering king. The king who has come to suffer and die for his people. Majority of Mark's treatment is focused on the last week of Jesus' life, this passion week. Now, as we put these two thoughts together, the quickness of the narrative and also the fact that the shadow of the cross falls on every verse of Mark's gospel, it's not surprising that already in the second chapter of Mark, we are... Confronted with the cross. Now, it's not that there is any particular description of what's going to happen at Calvary, but the events that occur in Mark 2 will ignite a chain of Events that will start the dominoes in such a way that Jesus will die. There is a sinister element introduced in Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 2. He has been healing. His healing ministry has become more and more popular. Jesus, somewhat of a celebrity figure in, in Palestine, But because of the events that happened in Mark 2, there is a group of individuals who conspire together to begin to plot Jesus' death. They are outraged, angered at what Jesus, the man of mercy, the incarnation of God, son of man, son of God, does here. And so the shadow of the cross falls on every verse of Mark's gospel and we're going to see that that Jesus will take the place of this paralyzed man in the fact that he pronounces the forgiveness of sins. We'll see how that works. And so Jesus demonstrates his authority to forgive sins As he heals this paralyzed man. And we'll walk through this into these four points. First of all, a paralyzed man, verses 1 to 3. Secondly, some persistent friends, verse 4. Thirdly, a provocative statement, verse 5. Some puzzled opponents, verses 6 and 7. And then a pervasive healing, verses 8 to 12. So a paralyzed man some persistent friends, a provocative statement, some puzzled opponents, and a pervasive healing. First of all, a paralyzed man, verse 1. We read, and again he entered Capernaum. When he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by for men, And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let the bed, made, when, they, when they made an opening, they let the bed on which the paralytic lay. They let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So there is Jesus, and he is in Capernaum. And Capernaum was his, home base for ministry. He's originally from Nazareth, but Capernaum is the the hub of his ministry. And this home is packed with people. And it's so packed that there is no room for anybody else. And what is Jesus doing as he has all these people around him, listening to him? Well, he's preaching to them. Now, We know that because of Jesus' healing ministry, that more and more of the crowds were coming to Jesus in great numbers. And you can understand why people would do that. They hear of this man, who is Jesus of Nazareth, who is able to heal, even with the mere word. And so they're coming to where Jesus is. And they come to this home, and it's completely packed out. And Jesus is preaching the word to them, as it says in verse two. As much as Jesus' healing ministry is significant and important, Jesus understands that his healing ministry is a sideshow to his teaching and preaching ministry. Jesus knows that one one person's eternal need is of a greater concern than their temporal tragedy. Yes, one might be healed of one's illness or disability or injury, but if your heart is not right with God, then your ultimate future isn't very good, and vice versa. You might be chronically sick. You might be Injured, unable to do what you like to do. But if your heart is right with the Lord in the gospel, your future is bright. It's good. And yet as Jesus is preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God, as he's giving his sermon, on this particular day, something strange begins to happen. The background, as we know, is that there was this man who is paralyzed. And he's carried to Jesus by four men. And because they could not get to Jesus, they could not bring their friend to Jesus directly, they had to come up with a another plan. So you can kind of imagine a little bit what this conversation was like. You know, the the initial enthusiasm that these four friends have and that they know that Jesus is in Capernaum and they know exactly what house he is in. And so they get their friend and they put him on the stretcher. And the 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 anticipation of what this is gonna mean, these friends cared about their loved one who was paralyzed. And imagine their discouragement, astonishment that when they get to the house there's they realize there's absolutely no way that they're going to get their dear friend to Jesus. So one of them comes up with the idea, let's go on the roof. Let's let's make a hole in the roof and we'll bring our friend to Jesus that way. And likely that idea was not Completely well received by the other guys right away. What? What what are you what are you saying? This is gonna get us in trouble. We're gonna distract, disturb this whole situation. But these friends persisted. And this plan becomes a mission. And so there Jesus is, he's preaching. And you can just imagine what that would be like. Now, this house was a lot smaller than this uh, room. These homes were quite, quite small. But as he's preaching, you could hear just some um, rustling and, and movement from the, from the roof. And there's bits of, of dirt and clods of mud and and dust that begins to come down. And it's enough that people realize there's, there is a disturbance. And eventually uh, some holes are, are made and. And rays of sunshine are poking through those holes, and that, that, that hole in the roof gets larger and larger. What, what is going on? And then they see this man lying on a cot, being slowly and carefully lowered from the top of the roof down to the floor. And he's being lowered right in front of Jesus. Now, at some point everything would have stopped. This disturbance, this commotion, is something that you can't not be distracted by. They had brought their dear friend to Jesus. He was a paralyzed man. He was unable to help himself. Modern disease of cerebral palsy is maybe what he had. He was... A dead weight to his friends in the sense that they had to carry him. They had to put him on this mattress. And they do that because they are some persistent friends. And that's our second point. And we need to admire the tenacity and the perseverance of these friends. Uh, They, at some point, were not concerned about the reproach, the awkwardness of doing it this way, they persisted and persisted until they got their, friends, their friend to Jesus. And what will Jesus do? What will Jesus say as their mission is accomplished and that they at least got their friend to Jesus. After they unroofed the roof, literally is what it means. Will Jesus reproach them? Will Jesus scorn them? Will Jesus say, fellas, you disturbed, distracted me from preaching. Can't you see we're doing something here? The owner of the house being furious, put a hole in my roof. But notice, Jesus does not reproach them at all. Verse five says, and when Jesus saw... Their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. The word son is the Greek word technon, which is a, a word of endearment, of affection, of compassion, concern. And instead of meeting an annoyed or a frustrated, disturbed Jesus, they have a face of Jesus which is one of love and mercy and of compassion. And it says here, when Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith, and this is why this point, their persistent friend, the persistent friends is important. Jesus recognized that their boldness was an expression of faith. They clearly believed that Jesus had the power to heal this man, and nothing got in the way of them bringing their friend to Jesus. And this is really a description of faith, isn't it? Faith, we might define it using the acronym forsaking all, I trust him. Forsaking all will remove any obstacle even a roof, to get to Jesus. And faith isn't a dead thing. Faith isn't a passive thing. It's an active thing. It is coming to Jesus. It's not that they merely knew about Jesus, but they come to Jesus. And they believe that Jesus was able to meet their deepest and most heartfelt needs. There's an application here, congregation. One of the greatest things we can do in this life is to be like these friends. In that, we bring a friend to Jesus for healing. Spiritual healing. The greatest thing in the world is to know Jesus. The second greatest thing in the world is to be an instrument in the Redeemer's hand to bring someone to Jesus for healing. Spurgeon said this, I would rather bring one sinner to Jesus Christ Then unpick all the mysteries of the divine word. For salvation is the one thing we are to live for. And sometimes our friends become spiritual paralytics. The affliction, the trial, he or she has is virtually immobilized, him or her. He or she is unable to help him or herself. So... much struggling in maybe regret or guilt or shame or unbelief or doubt, unable to help oneself. And maybe you and I are called to be like one of these persistent friends and to bring our friend who is paralyzed spiritually to Jesus for healing. And maybe you can't pray with him or her, but you can pray for him or her. And Jesus applauds the faith, this tenacious faith of these four friends who are bold beggars. Nothing gets in the way of them bringing their friend to Jesus. Now we have a provocative statement, and here's our third point, a provocative statement. And We've said that Jesus has mercy on this man. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And you can imagine that the friends of Jesus are a little perplexed by the fact that this is what Jesus says. Son your sins are forgiven. These four friends, (laughs) Uh, Jesus, um, yeah, we we really worked hard to get our friend here. Yeah, we put a hole in the roof, yes. Uh, But don't you see what his real need is? His legs don't work. He's paralyzed. He can't walk. He can't work. His life is very hard. His life is miserable. Do you know how much suffering he has gone through, Jesus? He's dependent upon everyone else. Look at even, we had to put him on a mat and bring him here. Jesus, just do whatever you do to make lame people walk and dance and be happy again. That's what we're here for. We came, Jesus, to get his legs fixed, not to have his sins forgiven. That might have been, likely, the response in the hearts and minds, emotions of the four friends. What is the response of the crowds? Well, they are stunned. They are shocked. They are surprised. Who is this man who speaks like this? Did you really say that? Did Jesus, did I hear that? Did Jesus really say, your sins are forgiven? And there's another group, and they are mad. They're in disbelief. They're angry. Something triggers in them. These are the opponents of Jesus. Verse 6. It says, now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So we have some, so our third point, some puzzled opponents. Puzzled opponents. Now it's maybe an even stronger word. Um, pernicious. but what does pernicious mean? <laughs> pernicious means they have an intent to cause harm. Some provoked imp- opponents. They are provoked, angry, and they're pernicious. They want to cause harm. And this is the teachers of the law. And this is the, surprising because the scribes and the teachers of the law, they were Jewish leaders whose job it was, whose calling it was, to study the Torah, the written word of God, and apply it to the life of the Jewish people. How does Torah get applied in Jewish culture and life? Religion. So they're the leaders of the church. They're supposed to be. They are supposed to be the good guys. But often they're misguided. And as we read the Gospels, we we notice this more and more, that Jesus must rebuke the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law. Because they were misunderstanding and misapplying Torah. Torah. And so they would dot their I's and cross their T's, but they would spell the the word entirely wrong. They are very misguided. And this pronouncement by Jesus makes them very uncomfortable. What? Your sins are forgiven. Now, as they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? They are right. That is a correct Statement: theologically. They are right. That's what the Old Testament scriptures say. Only God can forgive sins. So if anybody would pronounce the forgiveness of sins, he would be guilty of blasphemy because only God has the ability to forgive sins. Only God is the one who can forgive. So if you say your sins are forgiven, and if you are not God, that is blasphemy. So they're right, but they're also wrong. They're wrong because they don't have a category for the reality that Jesus, who is right in front of them, is truly God, that he is the Son of God. He is the promised Messiah. And because they are unwilling to believe this, and although Jesus demonstrates his authority as the Messiah, as the promised one, over and over again, by his teaching, by his miracles, by his presence. They reject him. They are irritated by him. They are provoked by him. And they begin a plot to have him killed. Now, you can imagine their shock when Jesus says, Perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves, he says, Why do you question these things in your hearts? You can imagine how shocked they would be because they're just thinking these things. And then Jesus says, I know what you're thinking. (laughs) Why are you thinking these things? And then Jesus says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, "Your sins are forgiven," or to say, "Rise, take up your bed and walk"? Which is easier to say the paralytic, "Your sins are forgiven," or to say, "Rise, take up your bed and walk"? So this, this is the counter question that Jesus gives to them. What's easier? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven. Or just say, "Take up your bed and walk." Well, boys and girls, what's easier? How would you answer that question? What's the easier thing to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say to someone who's paralyzed, "Take up your bed and walk." What's easier to say, in the sense that the 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 uh, the outcome or the effect of your words has an empirical, visual result, <laughs> meaning? If you say to someone, your sins are forgiven, and their sins aren't actually forgiven, you can't really necessarily tell anything different about that person. They may may look the same, walk up, go go away. Nothing changes, potentially, mostly. But if you say to someone who's paralyzed, take up your bed and walk, and he isn't able to walk, that he's still paralyzed and lame. There's no visual effect, power behind your words. It didn't work. So it's the easier thing to say your sins are forgiven because you can't really prove or not prove that that didn't happen. It's the harder thing to say, take up your bed and walk. Now Jesus has just said the easy thing. Son, your sins are forgiven. But to prove that he actually has the power to forgive sins, he says the more difficult thing in the eyes of the religious leaders. He says, but that you may know the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. There our Bibles properly have a, a dash, a pause there. He says to the paralytic, and then you need to pause. You need to hit the stop button. See, everything here is hung in the balance. If Jesus does say what he is about to say in verse 11, which he does say, the events that will trigger the greater hostility of these scribes and these Pharisees will only intensify. These opponents of Jesus will become even more organized and vigilant and more intent to destroy Jesus. Everything is hung in the balance right here. Will Jesus heal the man? And he does. This is our last point a pervasive healing. A pervasive healing. See, this is the point. If Jesus does heal this man, he will be asking for his own death sentence. Jesus' authority to forgive will be proved by healing this paralytic. And Jesus knows that if he proves himself to be the son of God by healing this man and pronouncing forgiveness, the teachers of the law will turn on him. Again, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, if Jesus... Pronounces absolution that he can forgive sins. Jesus is inferring that he himself is the one who has been sinned against, right? You can only forgive someone when they, he or she has sinned against you. If he or she hasn't sinned against you, you, you can't really forgive them in that sense. So it's what David says in Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. By pronouncing that he has the ability, the authority to forgive sins, Jesus is declaring that he indeed is God. And this is what outrages these scribes. And he proves he has this authority by healing this man. See, congregation, this is is what it comes down to. Because this man's limbs will soon dance, Jesus' limbs will soon dangle in death. Because this man's limbs will dance, Jesus' limbs will dangle in death shortly. Jesus will need his friends to take Jesus off the cross after Jesus has died. This is the train of events that will lead, the beginning of them that will lead to Jesus' death. And so Jesus trades places with this paralyzed man. This is the great exchange. And so the question is, why did Jesus do this? Why does Jesus throw the the match into the keg of, gunpowder to make this explosion go off and get these scribes so furious with him. Jesus knows their hearts. He knows that they want him dead. Well, this is it. Jesus has come to forgive sins, and therefore, Jesus will die. This is his mission, and this is the only way that man's sins, that your sins and my sins can be forgiven. That Jesus must die. And so it is easier to say your sins are forgiven. But it's a much harder thing to do. Do you realize what the forgiveness of sins, the fact that Jesus pronounces this man's sins forgiven, that Jesus does forgive sins, the sins of his people, all those who believe in him. Do you realize what it will cost Jesus? Jesus. Jesus will need to die. And brothers and sisters, the forgiveness of sins is not a cheap thing. It's not an inexpensive thing. Oh, that was easy. It was the most costliest and most expensive thing ever. The precious blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we look to the cross, when we understand the magnitude of of what is all happening at the cross We, we understand how much it costs to forgive sins well, How much it costs for your sins and my sins to be forgiven And what Jesus shows us That he has come did not to give us what we think we need But to give us what we really need And what we really need is the forgiveness of sins. You know, these 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 buddies of this man, you could imagine, they thought that their friend's greatest needs that day was to get his legs to work. And that's what he probably thought too. If only I can walk, if only I can work, if only I can do what everyone else does. What? Then I'll be what? Then I'll be happy. Then I'll be normal then I'll be okay. I just got to be able to walk. But is that his greatest need? It is suffering for sure. It is a need, absolutely. But is that his greatest need? No, his greatest need is his sin. His greatest problem is his need and his greatest need is forgiveness. And that is what Jesus is addressing And that's the way it is with the gospel with Jesus. He doesn't give us what we think we need. He gets to the heart of the problem. He just doesn't put a band-aid over the solution when he knows there's a deep, deep, deep infection underneath the surface. He gets right to the heart of the problem. And what is wrong? What is wrong in our world? What is wrong with you? What is wrong with me? What is our problem? It's our sin. That is our greatest problem and our Greatest need is forgiveness, and that is what Jesus has come to do. To do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Do we understand that? What's your biggest need? See, if we would write down what our biggest need is, we might have a whole host of answers. Boys and girls, to do good at school, to make friends at school, to be a good athlete. We might say as adults, just to... Fulfill my financial obligations. If only I can get this problem fixed, this problem at work, or this problem in my family. If only I could deal with that problem, then I would be happy, then all would be well. And yes, these are problems, sure, but not, they're not the deepest problem. And Jesus has come to heal us of our greatest sickness the cancer of sin. And this is what would happen at the cross. Jesus lives a perfect life. He never sins. He never breaks any of the commandments. He loves God the Father perfectly. Always does the Father's will. He loves his neighbor self-sacrificially. And because of that, he is able to go to the cross as the lamb without blemish. He's able to go as the sinless one. And on that cross, he he is the sin wearer and sin bearer. And on that cross, he pays the price. He absorbs the just wrath of God for all the sins of God's people. He pays it completely, entirely, sufficiently. There's no bit of injustice left in the system. It is all justly paid for. And Jesus dies, and he resurrects on the third day from the dead, demonstrating that his atonement has been vindicated by the Father. It is enough. And so, congregation, this is the only way that our sins could be forgiven. That Jesus, our Savior, the God man, the man who is God, has come and has suffered and died and rose again. And this is why we need to believe in him. This is why we need to come to him. This is why we need to worship him. Because only in him can we have forgiveness. It's been said, a forgiveness, the sense of being forgiven, is the most healing force in the world. There was a secular humanist a couple decades ago, and she said at one point to the media, and she was not a believer, she had spent much of her um, life, her writing life, uh, disputing the claims of Christ and Christianity. But at one point, she admitted this. She said, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have no one to forgive me. What I envy the most is your forgiveness, you Christians. I have no one to forgive me. And so congregation, may we remember that Jesus has come to not give us what we think we need, whatever that is. But he has come to give us what we really need. The forgiveness of our sins. The right standing with God the Father. The imputation of his own righteousness. And so we are the most free people in the world. And we should be the most joy filled. Because our future indeed is very, very bright. And very, very good. And so we thank the Lord for the healing power of forgiveness. Amen. Our Father, we come before you, and we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this narrative of how Jesus heals this paralyzed man, and of how he heals them, not merely of his physical infirmity, but of his spiritual bondage. And so, our Father, we pray that we would live lives of thankfulness, lives of gratitude, and if there are those here this afternoon that do not know the Lord and Savior as their personal Savior, as the one who can forgive them of their sins, deal with guilt, shame, the struggle, Father, may you work in their heart and mind powerfully by your Holy Spirit, and so we thank you for the glorious work of the gospel, in Jesus' name alone do we pray, amen.